Well, hey there. Welcome to The Real Podcast, hosted by Jason Kaliba. We think that real people are interesting, not just celebrities and superstars, but also the guy standing in line next to you at the grocery store and the kid beside you in church. We're passionate about sharing the stories and insights of those people, real people, so that you're challenged and maybe even inspired to grow. If you'd like additional resources or more information about our guests, check out our webpage at cochranalliance.com backslash real. So, let's get real. Okay, here we go. Uh, glad uh, that you've uh, joined us for another episode of The Real Podcast. And uh, late in May 2020, after months of news that circulated almost completely around the pandemic and the coronavirus, um, another sad episode unfolded in Minneapolis with um, the death at the hands of... Uh, some police of a man named George Floyd. And uh, as the reverberations uh, of that um, scene played out across the U.S. and into Canada and indeed around the world, the question of race, racism, uh, treatment of black people in general uh, has again come right to the forefront of uh, our uh, news feeds of our imagination of our conversation both in person and on social media and uh, as a guy I live in this little enclave in western Canada which sometimes seems far removed uh, from the conversation about racial tension in large urban cities uh, a lot in the U.S. and some in Canada uh, but uh, I can't deny that um, the issue of racism and how uh, people of different backgrounds come together, how society is structured, that, that question uh, is an important one no matter where you leave, live, whether it's the big city or a small town. And uh, sometimes as uh, a white guy, uh, I'm unsure how uh, I should respond, what I should be doing, um, thinking, and uh, so as I, I thought about it over the past few weeks, I thought maybe one of the best things that I could do is just take some time to listen and talk to some people who have a different background than I do, um, get their thoughts, not only on current events, but even just hear their stories of um, what it's like to be in Canada as a minority with a different skin color and background than uh, the majority culture uh, around us. And so uh, it is my pleasure uh, to to welcome three of my friends into the virtual, a uh, real podcast studio. Uh, Favor Samungwe, Richard Lutchman, and uh, Etunu Unangu. Uh, I told you I was going to butcher it, and I did. <laughs> That's fine. Unanunga. Unanunga. That's Close. Good. If you're Nigerian, please don't hold that pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Itunu, uh, maybe you could uh, kick us off, but I'd love to hear from each of you uh, just a, a little bit about uh, where you grew up and, and how it is that you arrived in the metropolis of Cochrane, Alberta. Okay, my name is Itunu Anonga. I grew Thank up you in for getting that, getting that pronunciation <laughs> right. I grew up in Nigeria. Um, I immigrated to the, the U.S. in 2010. Um, 
I went in for a master's course. And so I was a student for the first couple of years. And uh, in 2017, um, we decided to migrate to Canada uh, for so many reasons. Uh, one of one major reason is because we wanted a safer environment for our kids. Um, mm. There were so many things going on in the U.S. that is still going on in the U.S. And it got to a point where I could not leave the anxiety anymore when Femi goes out. Femi is my husband. And every day he goes out, um, afraid he might meet someone um, that would not like his face and then shoot it. And so we've had a lot of that play out every now and then. And it got to a stage I didn't want to, I didn't want to live that life anymore. So we found Canada to be more accepting of people of color. And mm. we decided to move to Canada. So in July 2017, we moved to Canada. Mm. And we spent about five months in Calgary before we decided to move to Cochrane. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Faber, uh, give us a, a little bit of your story uh, as well. Oh, thanks, Jason. Uh, my name is Faber Simongwe. I was born in a small landlocked country in central southern Africa region called Zambia. Mm. And that's where I grew up, up to my late 20s. And I had it in my mind that uh, around that time, I should start thinking, just thinking about getting married. Well, mm. I never thought I would meet a Canadian girl. So I met a Canadian, a beautiful Canadian girl in 1998. And um, so we fell in love and I was in university at the University of Zambia at the time. Mm. Um, between, uh, you know, with the two of us decided, you know, um, perhaps it is best for me to transfer and finish my program here in Canada. Mm. And then we can decide where we can, we will live. So in 2000, we got married and moved to Alberta. And because she had a job in Cochrane and I could go to school in Calgary. So we settled in, in Cochrane and the rest is history. Okay. And, uh, you have some kids now, uh, tell us about them. Yes, we have three wonderful kids, a 16-year-old boy, Shane, a 14-year-old girl, Matiala, and 12-year-old girl, Reina. Okay. Uh, last but not least, uh, Richard, uh, tell us your story. Everyone, uh, my name is Richard Lechman. Um, yes, my story is a, perhaps a little bit longer than everyone else's, but I'll try to whiz through it pretty quick <laughs> here in the essence of time. Uh, so I was uh, born in Trinidad and Tobago, the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the West Indies uh, till I was nine. Uh, moved to Canada in 1988 with my family, hmm. uh, four brothers and sisters, and my parents, of course. Uh, we lived in Canada uh, originally in Mississauga, and then uh, my father bought a house in uh, southern Ontario in a small town called Cambridge. Um, we lived uh, in Canada for about five years and then we moved back to Trinidad. Uh, we, yeah, we spent two years in Trinidad. So at that point I was 14 uh, and we spent two years there. And I say, I think that's a healthy reality, a dose of reality for any North American kid or any any kid uh, who wants uh, who wants to get back to their roots, especially at a really uh, peculiar time in a teenager's life, right when he's on a cusp of puberty. <laughs> uh, 
so 14 to 16, I was in Trinidad. And then my folks, um, we all migrated to New York City. Um, and we started off in, in Queens, moved to Brooklyn, and then finished off in the Bronx. Um, and uh, my wife, who I had met uh, when I was a little boy while I lived in, uh, in Canada, uh, had always stayed in touch with our family. And she had come down for my, my sister's wedding um, in the Bronx uh, at that point. And she came with her, her father and herself. And uh, uh, that was it. I was like, there's no way she's going back without having a boyfriend. <laughs> Uh, so we did for three years and then uh, got married when I was finished university. And then uh, uh, at that point, we, uh, I moved from New York City. We decided to live in Canada. And then I um, moved to Quebec where my wife was finishing her last year of university. And then mm. we migrated west. So going from um, uh, Quebec to Toronto, spent a year there. And then Toronto to Calgary, spent not quite a year then. And then... Um, one day we took our car, very first car for a test drive, uh, going west on 1A, and we were sold at the top of the hill when you saw this beautiful valley in, mm -hmm. in the town of Cochrane. Um, and so we've been living in Cochrane for the last 14 years, and yeah, it's been great. From uh, the Bronx to Heritage Hills, exactly yeah, the same thing. Yeah, I always say it's, it starts like this and it keeps getting smaller, right? It started small with Trinidad uh, and then uh, ended up in another small town. Huh. So um, the uh, the the interesting thing about all of your stories is that uh, you started your your days when you were part of the majority culture in in the country of your origin, uh, and then you at some point uh, uh, came to a place where you were uh, a minority. And so I don't know. Do you remember a time when you felt? some kind of difference and maybe favor i'll start with you because that happened maybe the latest uh, well i guess itunu and, and and favor both of it of you came later but do you remember a time when when just the you're like oh this some, something is not the same and maybe i'm the one who's not the same well i think it's um something that happens just about right away it mm -hmm. starts on the plane <laughs> 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 so once i got to cochrane um, 2000, there weren't very many other people that were not white in, mm. in this town. So I think the, the time that I really, re, you know, recognized that right away was at church. Oh. Because when I went to church, that was the first, you know, big gathering that I was in. And there was nobody else that was black. I was mm. the only one that day. I did find out later that there were a couple other people. But on the first Sunday... I realized right away that this is a little different from what I'm used to. <laughs> but I grew up on a, in a mission school where there were other different races in Zambia. So it wasn't totally surprising, but it was, I noticed it. Okay. And what, how would you describe the emotion of that? I didn't think too much of it because I did know that uh, Canada was predominantly white. So I, it was just confirmation and just thinking, okay, how am I going to navigate this now? Because mm -hmm. this is now my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Atunu, it was late, later in life for you. Uh, what was that like for you? So uh, even though we moved to the U.S. in 2010, oh, I moved to the U.S. in 2010, we lived, I, we lived in a predominantly black community a lot of Nigerians, a lot of black people. Mm. So I really didn't feel any cultural shock. Um, I had 
classmates that were white, you know, but it wasn't so much cultural shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved to Canada in 2017 and we lived in Calgary for five months. And I still didn't feel any cultural shock in Calgary uh, because there were a lot of black people. And then, you know, in the church we went to, there were a few, a lot of black people, actually, a lot mm-hmm. of Nigerians. So it wasn't any cultural shock. But the first Sunday in Cochrane Alliance, all that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was the first cultural shock I had because we sat down in the service and I was like, God, I'm praying that this church is the church because I've been finding a home church for a long time. I didn't find any church that I could connect to. So for me, the focus that day was, God, just give me something. Give me the worship. Give me the message. And it happened that I was more focused on the altar and everything. And then after the service, I was like, oh, my God, babe, this is it. And then I looked around and I was like, uh-oh. I'm the only black person here. So we looked at it also. I was like, oh my God, we're the only black. I'm like, are you sure? And then we started peeping and looking. I was like, okay. And he's like, is this still home? And I said, yeah, I think so. Like, I love the service. This is home. So I really don't care about the people around. I mean, well, sorry. I care about the people around, but I really don't care about the color of their skin. So it felt really peaceful for us. And then the amazing thing happened. You stepped down from the altar and you walked straight to us. I see you were waiting for us to come, to be in church and you walked straight to her and you were like, oh, welcome. You know, as you can see, there are so many people of different colors here and we're like, really, really? <laughs> <laughs> so for us, it was like, oh, this guy is nice. And he just felt right at home. He felt peaceful for us. And then, of course, when we called our family and friends to tell them, oh, we moved to a new town. And guess what? We went to church today. We are the only black people in the service. And everybody was like, are you crazy? You need to find somewhere else. But I was like, no, you don't get it. It's peaceful. It's lovely. Everybody was nice. And my sister was a little bit skeptical, of course. And she was like, mm-hmm. but it, it, it was the first time for us. And, you know, there's this Yoruba thing we say like, oh, you're going to a white man's land. And then I said to my sister, this is the first time we are going to, I mean, we are actually in a white man's land. Yeah. So all my yeah. years in the U.S., it's actually not a white man's land in my world because the people who were surrounded with were all black. So this is the first time I actually feel like I'm actually in a white man's land. Mm. So Richard, I know uh, your, in, your experience is interesting in that, you know, you've been back to country of origin. You also lived in highly diverse racial places like New York, Mississauga, I think also it's got to be one of the most racially diverse cities in all of Canada. What's been your, and then, you know, Cochrane, which is pretty white. What's been uh, your experience of dipping in and out of all these other environments? Do you, have you felt profoundly different or you're like, I'm one of the bunch here? Uh, For me, it's a little bit different uh, than some of the experiences I've heard uh, from me doing a favor. Um, You know, moving at such a young age, um, first time I I was listening to a favor talking about it started on the plane, where for me, it didn't start till grade four, sitting in a classroom in Mississauga and realizing I'm different than these people. And there's, you know, this is from a child's mind and and looking on, I was like, yeah, but soon uh, I realized living in Mississauga, it's basically just that it's a melting pot so i saw lots of kids my skin color uh, lots of blacks it was is very very mixed there and so um didn't exp- experience any sort of uh, racial tension or anything like that uh moving to cambridge ontario where it just got a little bit paler <laughs> for the <laughs> use of the word <laughs> um in a, in a smaller town but the the people there were very welcoming but it was the very first place where i um i 
I experienced uh, racism, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that was just a small uh, uh, set of people. And that was just one time. Um, but then, you know, moving back to Trinidad uh, and getting new perspective and then moving to New York City, um, you know, uh, actually, I'll tell you a funny story. When I moved back to Trinidad, because I was living in Canada for so, uh, you know, like five years, I now developed this accent that I'm called, I'm called, I call this an accent. <laughs> and so I was so, I wasn't used to speaking Trinidad only at home, but when I was out in public, I would speak like this. And so when I started schooling, um, I spoke like this, um, very clean, I, I would call it cleaned up English. <laughs> um, and so they started to call me white thing. Oh. in school and i mean i'm brown and it goes to brown and black people and they call me white thing and uh that only lasted maybe a month where I, as i got more comfortable with them then i actually started speaking with my uh, my my trinidadian oh. accent but a little still a little bit more cleaned up because i just <laughs> felt awkward for me huh. right huh. Uh, moving to to new york city um it's a huge melting pot there I, I, I never once uh, felt uncomfortable there. Lots of blacks, mm-hmm. uh, lots of well, lots of everything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the school that I went to, whites were the minority. Um, and so, yeah, um, very comfortable. The one thing I enjoyed and I found out when only moving to New York City, um, there's pockets of um, uh, racial groups or, or, or cultural groups, or, uh, mm-hmm. rather whether you're from the West Indies um, or you're Portuguese, uh, you're Jewish, you're Russian, you're whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, Hispanic, there's always pockets throughout New York City um, that you can live in where you can essentially, you're in a a microculture um, of uh, similar people to your your background. So you really didn't have to venture out to experience any Mm -hmm. sort of other cultures unless you wanted to. Um, When I moved to Canada here, felt really comfortable at that point uh, because I was, you know, I'll use the word assimilated so young um, that I, I felt like uh, one, everybody else, right? Um, I, there was no reason for me to feel like someone should uh, treat me differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we moved to obviously from Toronto, from Quebec to Toronto, same thing like New York City, um, and then moved to Calgary, didn't feel out of place. It was a, a more more white folks than I had previously experienced. But mm-hmm. the the time I felt the most nervous was when uh, when we moved to Cochrane because um, now I was at a point where it was it was really white. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole cowboy <laughs> that had going on made me really really nervous. And I, I I turned my wife and I said, you know, as beautiful as the town is, are you sure I don't want to get lynched? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was quite nervous and a uh, true story uh but since moving here not once it was mostly it was actually it was all in my head really than it had to do with the people of Cochrane. okay well you you guys have been all pretty positive so far um can you i think it's important for us to hear what's it been when's the time that sticks with you um when someone really made a, a point of, of pointing out difference or using stereotypes. What's, what's, what's been a time that you go, okay, you know, whether, you know, Richard, you're the only one who was here when you were young, but that sticks out in your head as a time when that, that stung, that's, that's sticking with me. And it could be recent or it could be back in the past. Oh, in, in the U S um, and maybe Richard, you can testify to this. You lived in the U S I think racism in the U S is in your face. Like 
they literally will tell you to your face, I don't like your black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They will mm-hmm. tell you to your face. And I have actually had a job offer recently because the guy found out I was immigrant. So I, I went through all the job interview, all the faces, got the offer letter, signed it. You know, I was ready to go. And then the CEO found out that the person that was hired for that job was an immigrant. And he called me himself. And so when he said, hey, hi, blah, blah, blah. I was like, huh? He was like, oh, we have a little issue. Okay. Um, so the offer and he just couldn't even articulate his words, but he was like, so we probably have to change the offer. I'm like, oh, okay. And he was offering me a whooping $25,000 less than what I had originally offered. And I was like, oh, why is that? Is, that, is there a change in the budget for the position? And he was like, no. Okay, so why exactly are you offering me $25,000 less? And he was just like, um, yeah, that's, that's just what we want to offer you. And I'm like, oh, wait, I already signed an offer letter. And I couldn't really understand what he was saying. And I couldn't really understand what was going on. And after that call, it felt so awkward. I said, oh, no, I'm going to decline the offer. I mean, why would I do that? Why would I take that? Like, it's demeaning. I went off the phone. I called my mentor. And I was like, can you please help me understand what just happened? Because... That was my first time in my face. I've had people's experiences, but that was my first time. And it was like, oh, it's because he found out you're an immigrant. And I went online to the company's website to read about reviews. And I noticed that was the trend. I felt really, Mm. I felt really small. I felt really disrespected. And thank God I still had another job at that time. Because if I had signed off on my other job, I don't know what I would have done. So in, in the U.S., it's in your face. They will tell you to your face, I don't like you. I'm not going to promote you because of this. I've, you know, it's, it's there. In Canada, it's not in your face. It's more like this passive aggression thing going on. They smile mm. at you and show you all the love from, you know, in front of you. But then at the back, they won't give you the opportunity. And for me at work, I've had opportunities taken away from me because I've been perceived as a black aggressive woman and it's sad when you hear these things about oh you are too strong oh you know you are intimidating and i'm like okay is that supposed to be a compliment like Hmm. i've had people like oh it's only it's coming it's only it's coming like hey how are you and i'm like do you think i'm a fool i just saw what you did right like Hmm. and it's 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 heartbreaking every now and then and for me well in Cochrane, i've not really had that you know from people except one guy in rbc wouldn't think i deserve to have a check of that huge amount and started questioning me literally asking me i mean he didn't say give me your paycheck let me see if you hand that much but he had to ask me all this weird question i know you ask questions in the bank you know it's normal but the questions it was going beyond the normal and i left that day and you know i was so hungry i called back and i said i really want to talk to your manager and when i eventually talked to the manager i could hear from her asking that she was an immigrant and you know she apologized i'm sorry you know they should have given you this money it's your money it's your check you shouldn't have to like explain yourself why you have to withdraw your own money and I said, do you know why I think that happened? The guy just felt like a black girl cannot have that much money. And she said, I know what you mean. I, I am so sorry. I said, mm. well, the only reason I'm not going to take this off is because I feel like 
you're an immigrant too, so you probably have experienced it. I'm going to let this slide, but you know, this is not going to happen to me again. I'm not going to stand and let people treat me like I'm less of a human because I'm black. Mm. And so for me, it's in Canada, I think it's subtle, very subtle, but is it there? Yeah, it's there. Okay. I, I've seen my son not treated so right, but I just don't want to read too much meaning into that. I just move on and go to the next thing because there's so much good than the evil. So I decided to like <clears throat> let the good, you know, overcome the evil and just move on. Okay. But yeah, it's in Canada. Mm. Thank you. Uh, favor, maybe let me, let's talk a little bit about the uh, igniter that maybe reopened in a fresh way, the conversation about race uh, for us. And that's the, that's the, the death the, and the killing of George Floyd. Can you, can you tell us about when you first came across it and, and what that was like to watch the video and, uh, and, and see that unfold? Yeah, so I think it happened, I, I got to know about it within two days of it happening. Mm -hmm. I, I can't really place the exact date, probably around May 27 mm -hmm. or so. Uh, my daughter had, had seen a news flash on her phone and um, so when I turned the TV, she was in the lead to show me and say, look at that guy. And then we all watched together. Yeah, so the first thing that came to me, to my mind, and just to my whole self was sadness, just looking at that and thinking, well, I don't really know the circumstances that led to, to that kind of a, an action. And, you know, seeing already by then there were commentaries that were already talking about how, you know, brutal that was and that, you know, if that guy was there for nearly nine, nine minutes on the, the guy's neck and didn't stop until he died almost pretty much. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to look at that and say, I pretty much possess about every attribute that that guy has. What is it to say that I wouldn't find myself mm -hmm. in that exact situation? Mm -hmm. And not only that, well, I have a son. Okay. And, and you, know, you start projecting into the future and, and think, if this does not change, then we're gonna be seeing images like that more and more. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of uh, emotions that uh, overtakes you and, and, and and in a way, it paralyzes you. You think, I do I even got what it takes to, to do anything about this? Mm -hmm. So it, it really fills you with sadness. So, that, so can I you tell on. us what you did at your, so when that came, what did you, what was the response as a family? How did you guys process it? Well, I, as soon as I saw that, I thought the best thing I need to do since my kids are, you know, teenagers and pre-teenagers is probably to sit down and let everybody watch it together because it's going to play out anyway. Mm -hmm. And maybe everybody lets out how they interpret it. So we talked to me, that was the, you know, the beginning thing is for us to talk about it and, you know, support one another that way and, and just call it as it is that that's mm -hmm. not nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and were your kids pretty verbal about processing it or is it uh, under the hood where they're thinking about those things? Everybody was very um, upfront about it and mm -hmm. how they felt. And 
yeah and they did a lot of research and mm. they looked at it from various perspectives my okay. son is very very um well read <laughs> and so he can he can approach an issue historically and current affairs and and sometimes go against you know public perspective perception okay. so we had a pretty vibrant discussion about it okay yeah. richard how did you process it uh when you first came across it for myself uh, it's hard to say i'm used to seeing it Mm. Uh, I mean, and it started with the first case I remember where, I, you know, with racism and experiencing it was in New York City with Abner Louima, who was a Haitian immigrant that was arrested by the cops. And then they took him to the bathroom and they beat him up and uh, assaulted him, uh, you know, quite a bit. And then obviously we had Rodney King out in L.A. Mm -hmm. you know, getting beat down on the on the highway. So. You know, it's sad to say this was just a, another case of police brutality against a, a black person. Um, and so it was quite sad. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a straw that uh, broke the camel's back um, because leading up to George Floyd, there were maybe half a dozen other police incidents um, that w police were completely in the wrong, right? And so for me, it's just like, okay, sure. It, Here's a another person of color, another minority that's been now has now just lost their life. Um, so, yeah, that's how I reacted to it. Um, and for me, it's more anger um, than sadness. I've heard favorites that sadness. Um, I and mean, sure, there's sort of a mixed uh, bit of sadness in there, but um, it's more anger. And I, I'm, you know, it made me. It makes me makes me want to hit somebody. I'll be honest with you. Mm. Um, just that there are so many people surrounding that cop with his knee on that person's neck, and because that gentleman has a gun, and because he's in a, a position of authority, no one can push him off or tell him get off because um, because he could he could easily turn on you and shoot you. Uh, yeah. Partners there, right? Because you know, first instinct is somebody like take that guy out. Um, so for me, it's, it's anger. Uh, as far as my family, my kids are concerned, you know, I've got younger kids and then my oldest is uh, 14. So explaining to them, it's, it had to be broken down into two parts and in the way, you know, using words like that's not nice, uh, where my 14 year old, it's, it's just quite more vocal about yeah. that. It's, it's flagrant abuse of power. And it, it, and you know, for my, my son, it's, it's mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah for them uh, you know they've loved, loved, lived a very sheltered life um, living here in Cochrane but uh, you know as they get older and they get exposed to different social media they're coming across sadly um, cases like this and so Julie and I uh, realized that you know we've sheltered them for as long as we can and now they are going to see the world for for what it is and so we need to get ahead of that and educate them and tell them mm. that these things may happen to you it hasn't yet thankfully um but that's the approach that we took huh. so Ituna, this this is uh, a movement uh, in lots of cities around the world um what's what's your take on the on the uh, on the protest movement that's that's been spawned by uh george floyd's death First, I'm going to comment about how I felt when I saw it. Um, sure. I think I saw it about maybe two days after it happened. And 
I could not bring myself to watch the video. So I just saw the headline and I just read and I just saw the picture and that was enough for me to go into almost depression because I was like, not again, like not again. I think the breaking point for me in all of the killing and shooting was Trevor Martins. And it was a teenager that had a hoodie on. And for me, it was like, oh, so that could actually mean that you're dangerous or you look like a criminal because you have hoodie on. And for me, Femi likes hoodie. And every time he's going on, I'm like, no, babe, you cannot wear that because mm. I just don't want the stories that touch their hearts. I, mm. I don't want someone to say, oh, because he had hoodie on and he looked dangerous or something. Mm-hmm. Femi is a big guy. So for me, it's more like reminding him and literally treating him like a child when he's going out. Babe, mm. please be careful. Don't talk to anyone. Please put your hands up. You know, literally telling my husband what to do when I he's not a five-year. agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was it was sad for me. So I think that was a breaking point for me when we were living in the U.S. And I was like, babe, we need to move out of here or else I'm going back to Nigeria. And it was more like, we got to do something and we got to do it now. And so we started looking at countries and Canada came up like a quiet country and we moved there. So when I saw that, I tried to like take myself out of anything, anything it happens like that. But when I saw that, it was more like, not again. I felt that sadness all over again. I felt angry. I felt sad. I felt literally almost in depression. And I didn't bring myself to watch the video until after about a week. And I actually had Femi sit down beside me while he played the video for me because I said, I, I'm not sure I can handle it. I've seen the comments. I've read the scripts. I saw how, I mean, I've read how he said mama, but I haven't heard it by himself. When I watched mm-hmm. the video for a black man to say mama, it's, it's more than just saying mommy. It's, it's, it's deep. Black mm-hmm. men are proud. They are strong and they are perceived that way. But for a black grown man to say mama, that's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like it was, and it, for a moment I felt like, oh, thank God we're in Canada. So it's probably not going to happen to us, you know. But then I, I started letting reality down on me. Yeah, we're in Canada. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen in Canada. Mm. It happens all over the world. I saw a video of a black woman entering a mall in China, and the Chinese guy didn't let her in because she he said, well, you guys brought coronavirus to China. And I'm like, so it's not just the North American thing. It's not just viewers. It's everywhere. And it's mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And the protest, I support the protest. Okay. And I, I feel like it's long overdue. This one, like um, Richard said, it's the last straw that broke the cameras. But I think this is why everybody's like, oh, come on now. Enough is enough. Maybe because the, the videos are now, I mean, social media is helping us to you know, post the videos and people are becoming more aware. And then people were like, are you serious? Like, you guys already apprehended. His, back, his hands were already behind his back. Like, what else do you need? How, how threatened can you feel by someone being face down with hands behind his back? What else do you need him to do? And so I've sub- I, I literally feel like I should go for a protest. And when there was one organized in Cochrane, I really wanted to go. Like I was a little bit vocal on that page when someone posted it and I could see people's reaction. And that I guess I was taken aback by that. Because for me, for the first time, reality dawned on me that, yes, you're in Cochrane. Every- most people are accepting of you and all that. But there are some people that have this underlying thing going on. Like they've never had the opportunity to be vocal, but now they can sit behind their computer and type stuff 
And I responded to a couple of comments. Then it, become, it became so exhausting to even read or respond to those comments. And I was like, babe, I really want to go for this protest because it feels like these people are becoming aware and we have a lot of people of other race that want to support us. This is a time for us to go out and do what they want. I mean, they are there to support us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I feel like, I feel like I betrayed people by not being on that post last Sunday. I think it was Sunday or Saturday. Yep. I felt like I should have been there. But you know why I wasn't there? I was afraid because I could, someone commented that, oh, I'm going to come there and, you know, be in people's face. And someone was like, why do you need to, so it was more like there was going to be a confrontation and I was afraid. And I said, mm-hmm. if, if, if not for the fact that I just had a baby, I felt like if, if my baby, were, my kids were a little bit grown up, I wouldn't mind throwing portion in the hair and doing what I need to do to fight for the life of my kids. But I felt like I just have a three-month-old baby, huh? If something happens to me, what's going to happen to her? And that was why I didn't go. I was terrified to step out of my house because I feel like now the people's, the true nature of people are coming out. Like people that have these things in their mind, they're now becoming vocal to talk about how much they don't like you. And the only reason they've been quiet is because you've not passed your boundary in their world. Like just stay in your lane, kind of. But once you become a little bit vocal and you say, this is not right, then they, their true nature comes out and they attack you. So I was literally afraid mm. to go out of my own house. The first time I went out was roughly two weeks ago and I went to Canadian Thai. So I had to have my friend go with me. And I said, girlfriend, if anything happens, make sure you record it. That's how afraid I was to mm. step out of my house. Mm. Wow. It's horrible. Mm. And, and is that easing for you or uh, <sighs> it's, not, it's not going away easy? I've not been outside since that day. <laughs> I've only been out one time and I think the day you called was I think I felt a little bit at peace because it got to a point I was almost losing faith in Christianity and not in the belief of Christ but in the people because I could read comments of some people that are supposed to be Christians and they're thought process in this whole thing i was like ah, we must be reading different bible because i can't believe this person is a christian and saying things like this and posting things like this so and these are people that i know mm. and i'm not able to like match the like it's like this science in my brain i can't match the way they are acting and the way they're posting and i'm like they're supposed to be a christian really and for you when you called i was like oh finally someone can understand that there's every possibility these people are not doing okay someone can actually call to check on my mental health because i was going down a lane that i don't want to be and when you said you wanted to do this remember i asked you are you sure because i feel like there are a lot of people who don't even want to talk about it it's uncomfortable for them to talk about it and so they they just assume it's not happening but it is happening Mm. And we have to talk about these uncomfortable things mm. and we have to make sure we are okay talking about it. So, uh, Faber and Richard, uh, Ituna raised the part of the, a, a big place where the discourse on this is happening is on social media. Uh, are you guys, uh, playing in that playground and are you seeing, uh, people that, you know, <clears throat> uh, voice opinions that you're like, Oh, really? That's what's, behind the scenes what, what's been your engagement on, on the social media scene 
I, I guess I'll go first and you know, favorite can jump in if sure. you like. But uh, for myself here, yes, I'm very active. Uh, I will post stuff to just get under people's skin, <laughs> um, tick them off. I, I really don't care. I, uh, Itunu, I, I know uh, and I've heard her say like, you know, at one point she's afraid to go out her house and I'm the complete opposite. I'm bold, I'm loud and I'm, I can be obnoxious if I need to. But I don't go out there doing that. But I'm just saying that I'm prepared to engage in conversation if somebody wants to. Mm. Um, the whole thing about not wearing a hoodie, um, I get it. You know, I would still tell her, yeah, you're right. Don't let him go out the side and put a hoodie on. Relaxing. Let him put a, a button-up shirt or a, a polo shirt on so that he looks more inviting to speak to or to wow. interact. True story. Uh, yeah, same thing with me. Uh, I, I do the exact same thing. So. Mm. Don't stop. Um, Thank you. Uh, you know, like my father said, if you look, uh, you you know, if you look the part, you'll act the part, and people will tr- treat you uh, uh, in that in that character that you're, you know, that you're you're acting out right now. So, and I do the same thing. Hmm. Um, you know, for uh, you know, my sister lives in Minnesota, just uh, a half hour south of Minneapolis. Wow. Um, and she's angry uh, that people are, you know burning down targets and creating chaos and stuff and i do agree to an extent and i would believe that 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 in part is wrong to like burn your house down right but it makes me wonder if if they did not go to the extent of that of rioting and trashing and burning down police vehicles and storefronts and things like that and instead, if they had locked arms with Martin Luther King and walked, marched down the street, would we still have gotten um, uh, uh, charges and updated charges mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. charges not only for the, the cop that had his knee, knee on the, uh, Floyd's neck, but the other two or three cops also charged and have their charges upgraded. Would we have had that had these people not gone to the extent that they did? Makes me wonder. I'm not saying it's right. I just saying, what if they didn't do that? Would we have had these charges? And to have charges, that's just the beginning. Yeah. Most of, 99% of these these cops that that it goes to trial, guess what? They come out on the other end and no charge, uh, no convictions have been made. Yeah. So it's not done and it's not over. Uh, yeah, um, so yeah, social media, I, I play it out and I, I have fun with it and I, I post stuff. Uh, uh, and for me, it's really to get reaction out of people and have them come out of the woodwork and, and, and say something. And that's the whole point and the whole reason. Don't just stay quiet, don't mm-hmm. just, uh, we have a, a term a term in cricket saying batting in your crease. Don't just bat in your crease. Step out. Uh, say something. Acknowledge that a wrong has been done and that you disagree with it. So, um, you know, protesting isn't just for people of color. It's for all people to yeah. identify injustice and say, you know what, we agree this is wrong and it should not happen. Favor, have you been playing in social media? Uh, social media itself, not to the same extent as... Uh, Itunu and Richard, but yeah, I am pretty up to date with what's happening, uh, you know, using social media and other media. Um, protests themselves, I think it was and is necessary. I think mm-hmm. it's reached a point where, uh, like Richard said, that, you know, the, the guy that was on uh, Floyd's neck had a gun and had authority and power. And, you know, w- looking at what's been happening over the 
over the years, for a long time, I think people have tried all means possible and there seems to be no change to the next yeah. step where in the 21st century we are seeing what we are seeing. Mm. So I think people do need to put the message across. And if it means protesting, and, and it has worked in the past, even in the church. Mm. So I think, I think it is something that uh, was necessary in this case. Okay. And is necessary. So Faber, I want to stay with you. And uh, I know you think about this stuff uh, uh, at an academic level, but one of the big conversations has been around not just racism in general, but systemic racism. Mm -hmm. how, how do you define that? And, and how do you see it playing out in the lives of Canadian minorities? Well, I won't have a very crystal clear definition of it, but what I would say is it's, uh, it's, it's something that happens in a system, you know, a practice that is kind of generally accepted and yet it's not right. Mm. So that is kind of in a nutshell how I would, I would say. But how does it play out in our systems? Uh, it's so uh, prevalent, just like uh, uh, Itunu said, our racism in Canada is not very explicit. Okay. It is something that is kind of underground, something that is subtle, something that is, even if it is, you, you are refused a job based on race, you wouldn't be mm -hmm. told that, of course. And <laughs> you, you really have to go another level to realize that that's all right. That's how I missed that job. Okay. And that is happening. And in my job as an educator, um, I've seen it in various fronts, including among us, the teaching profession, um, working in various big boards. I, pro I probably shouldn't mention, you know, employers here because I'm mm. not speaking for anybody, but personally. Yep. But, you know, we do have various levels of employment. We have temporal teachers, you know, teachers that are almost getting tenure and others that are supply teachers or substitute teachers. I noticed over the time that a lot of minority teachers end up on the sub list. I see. They don't make into getting tenure as much as others. And, you know, over the years we have discussed as minority teachers why that is. Mm. And it's hard to find an answer other than feeling that this is why. Mm. <laughs> right? So that is a systemic issue there. And then, you know, there's also issues about curriculum, you know, things that are written in the curriculum, how including are they, mm -hmm. how excluding are they, and who do they include and who do they exclude. Mm -hmm. So all of those are different levels of, um, you know, inequalities that are playing out in our systems. So I could give a lot of different examples. Employment is one, as I would say, and then of course, even just daily operation. Um, and uh, just for um, people who don't know you, what, what grades are you currently teaching? I teach grades eight to 12. Okay. And yeah, so- Most of my, my work has been grade 10 to 12. In terms of curriculum for, for that, so junior high, high school, um, have you, are there some times that you go, man, this is, a, this is somebody's take on history, but, or this is somebody's take on the issue, but it's leaving out a, a wide part? Like, do you have an example of that? 
There's a lot. Like, you know, there's, a, you know, in my graduate studies at the University of Lethbridge, I think that one I can say, um, I realized pretty quickly that there was quite a bit of Black history in Alberta. And you really have to dig deep into the literature to find it because many of it exists in, foot, uh, in footnotes. And there's a, a handful of books that have been published, but they don't make the um, social studies uh, curriculum. I see. And that's almost the same as the indigenous curriculum as well. Mm-hmm. Luckily enough, because of numbers, I think, the curriculum for indigenous has become legislated. So... Yes. They, it is pushed to the fore a little more than other minorities. I even drove up to a place known as Amber Valley in northern Alberta just to trace that history. And is that near Athabasca? Yes. Yes, I've heard about that community, yeah. Yeah, mm. so that was a group of black people that had immigrated from Oklahoma in about mm. 1910 and settled there. And there's even a cemetery there. Some of the ancestors still get buried over there. Mm-hmm. But all of that history does not really show up in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is what we would clearly see as systemic racism in a way. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you want to tell the whole story and not part of it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Richard, any uh, Itunu also mentioned kind of the same employment angle uh, as Faber did. Uh, w- when you look at systemic stuff, like r- versus maybe individual incidents of uh, that are racially motivated, would you say you've seen or experienced anything that you would describe as systemic? Not a single one, because you know why? Because I'm there. I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the ambassador <laughs> for visual. Uh, visible minorities um, and people that share a similar uh, background as I do or, or, or not. You know, I am, I work in talent acquisition. I've been doing it the last uh, 15 years and being a, per, a visible minority, I'm the one that's looking at those resumes and then providing that uh, to our hiring managers for whichever uh, organization yeah. I'm working yeah. with. Um, I always have a running joke about people I interview over the phone and they come in to meet me. I was like, surprise, (laughs) (laughs) you're expecting Richard Lutchman, perhaps maybe a Jewish guy, Jewish white guy. No, you don't expect to come and see this, right? And so I, I laugh about that. And I, always, I and I purposely do that because I want to see a reaction. I look for reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people just laugh about it and stuff, um, and are, are really good sports about it. Um, but for me, um, in the important thing in everything in I do when it comes to talent acquisition and hiring for different organizations is to remove bias. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, something we call unconscious bias mm-hmm. um, and, and to, to target that and ensure that um, the proper training has been provided to hiring managers throughout the organization to recognize their unconscious bias and then to eliminate that uh, in their hiring efforts. Um, you know, so we work with them. I do a proper, you know, intake call at finding about what their particular group is lacking 
I actually do my own research to figure out, okay, how many men and women are stacked on their group? Okay, how many people uh, are visible minorities or minorities mm -hmm. in general that are in that group? Um, because my job is not just to hire a body, but is also to, to complement their staff, yep. uh, right? Uh, and so he, he or she may want this type of person and that type of person, but when I look at their group and I, it's a group of all women or all men or all black or all Indian, or it's just, hey, you know, you're good here. You, we could do a little bit there. Um, uh, you know, we said, let's, let's try to interview a good flavor. Uh, and the same thing that I need to be aware about is my own unconscious bias. Perhaps I'm too much leaning on one side and looking for visible, visible minorities. And then I'm, I'm just as guilty of maybe discriminating against whites. And that's also wrong. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so that's something that I, I try to do. And um, thankfully, all, every organization that I've worked for um, knows that that's something that exists within individuals. Uh, so let's, let's uh, work together to, to you know, make our, our company and the teams uh, even better by having a, a diverse um, employment group, right? So um, and I'm thankful to say that I've, and you know, I'm glad to also say that uh, I've experienced uh, any hiring managers that I felt that way because I would lose my mind. Mm. And, and so you felt that your uh, Caucasian uh, recruiters that are along, working along with you, they're favorable and they're, they're generally uh, are open to broadening their mind that way. Absolutely. Mm. On the flip side too, relate to that, when you're working in the oil and gas, uh, predominantly in the oil and gas industry in Alberta, not like now, when you are strapped for resources and people, are you really in a position to discriminate against <laughs> color, right? Like when, when there isn't a whole lot of people. So thankfully, uh, that would help getting rid of uh, a lot of the systemic uh, uh, racial ideology that some people have, right? Just because, because the need, need forces you to hire. I need you. I don't care if you're from Nigeria or you're from India or you're from China. If you've got the background and experience and your English is pretty good where you can actually carry out your, your, the requirements of the job, um, I'm going to hire you. Mm. Um, so that's been a great thing. I wonder now, um, the last couple of years I've stepped out of talent acquisition, uh, just working alongside of it. I wonder now when there is an overabundance of uh, skilled uh, uh, people out there, I wonder uh, if we are going to revert back to now discrimination. Older patterns. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know what I mean? We spent so many years where we're scrambling for people and um, thankfully it's helped uh, in a lot of the cases. Um, but now that there's maybe too many, quote unquote, um, uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we won't now start discriminating. Now that we get, we get our pick, are we gonna play the black person, the brown person, the white person or et cetera, right? Mm. And I, I'm, I'm hoping we don't revert back to any sort of systemic uh, relations, racial. Thanks Richard, that the, the behind the scenes look on, on uh, recruitment and hiring is very interesting. Okay. Uh, Etunu, um, uh, I always say that the uh, the real podcast audience is is vast and worldwide. Uh, but what would you what would you want to say to your fe fellow Cochraneites about uh, treatment of of minorities, especially Black people, as that's where the conversation is these days? W what would you want to say to us uh, in terms of how we can do better? Talk about it. Get uncomfortable talking about it. 
silence I've heard is dangerous. So I'll give you an analogy. It's more like you are going out with your family and probably you have your elderly mom or dad or, you know, someone in your family and you guys are going out together and someone pushed your grandma on the floor. Would you just keep quiet and walk by? Mm. You wouldn't do that. You would go mad. Like you would like, are you kidding me? That's the way we want you guys to treat us. Right. Like when I say you guys, like everybody should be treated the same way. Mm -hmm. Like if you see someone being treated unjustly, whether they're brown, black, pink, yellow, white, say something. Don't just be complacent about it. Don't feel like it's none of my business or it's not me. And then walk by. Like I've seen people really taking this beyond just talking about it on social media. I saw little uh, white girl stand in front of a black guy that was about to be assaulted by the, op, uh, by the police and say, you have to literally go through me to get to him. And that's just going beyond just saying I'm not racist. It, it says you have to be anti-racist. Don't just say, oh, well, I have a black friend because that's a lot of times people say, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Really? You have that black friend makes you what? Exactly. We should be grateful you have a black friend. No. You should go beyond just saying, I have a black friend. You should go beyond saying, you should, you should actually talk about it. I think the first thing is conversation, right? When you call it and say, let's talk. That's the very first step. People just act like it's not happening and they just stay silent. I'm like, I don't want to lose my friends or my family because if I say something, they might not like it and they will stop talking to me. A lot of people have lost friends, followers on social media because they've been vocal about it. But this is wrong. You will not let your own family member be treated this way. So why would you let it happen to someone else? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I always think about the way people have interpreted what has happened. Oh, Judge Floyd wasn't a mother. He's not a Christian. He's not, he has criminal record and blah, blah, blah. And it brings me back to my Bible. And I'm like, I remember the story where this woman was accused of adultery and they were going to stone her to death. And Jesus stepped forward and said, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Mm-hmm. And I think about it and I'm like, okay, if you keep quiet and just say, well, because he's a criminal, he deserves to die. I don't know what that says about you as a person or as a Christian. You should step forward and say, this is wrong, no matter what, whether he was a criminal or not, it shouldn't be more than broadly like, like that. You should say something. See something, say something. I'm going to read it a quote um, by someone I truly respect. And she said, she said, the beauty about being anti-racist is that you don't have to pretend to not be racist. You, it's, it's not something. Okay. The beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism. Anti-racism is a commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, mm. including in yourself. Is the only way forward. Mm. Like Richard said, we all have maybe unconscious bias, right? I mean, I've had people tell me to change my name to even get a job on my resume. You literally have to change your name. I shortened my name. My name is longer than Itunu. It's Itunu. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of recruiters will not call you. And one of them told me to change my name. And I said, well, I won't change my name. My name is powerful. It means something. The mm. best I can do is to shorten it and make it a little bit easier for you guys to pronounce. Mm. But I'm not going to change my name. And when I was considering naming my children, I gave them English names purposely because I don't want them to have to go through what I went through. 
in terms of people just looking at the name and like, ah, then don't let's bother calling our mm -hmm. name or whatever. So it's about talking about it. Don't, even if within you, you have to start searching for yourself. Like, what do I believe? Why am I hungry about the protest? Or am I hungry about the guy dying like that? So it's like people get angry. Oh, there's protests that burn down the building. But are you actually as angry as you are right now about the guy dying? We should talk about these things. We should actually check ourselves and have those uncomfortable conversations and talk to people of color and ask how they want to be treated or what they need from you. What we need from you is alliance. Like stand beside us, stand with us fight this battle with us don't let someone be pushed down and ignore it as if you didn't see it because it's not you or it's not your family member thank you i i uh, uh my story is obviously quite different but i i feel i feel a little bit for you on the name side i know my grandfather came from the ukraine when he was quite young and his i can't even say it but his ukrainian name was horst and when he when he got to the one-room school room uh, in Alberta, his teacher's like, what's your name? He's like, Hust. He's like, I don't know. What, that's not your name. You are Gust. <laughs> so for the rest of his life, he was known as Gust Kaliba, G-U-S-T. If you looked in the phone book in Edmonton in the 1980s, he was Gust wow. Kaliba. And I, I always go like, what? Like, my grandfather got pegged as Gust because his teacher didn't want to take the time to butcher his name like mm -hmm. I just butchered yours, but that was it. That's just the way it worked. Uh, uh, favor, what, what would you want to say to Cochranites? And I would even maybe get more specific than that. Um, what would you want to say to your fellow Christians, uh, people who say that they, that they don't just identify as a certain you know, uh, ethnicity, but they, they identify as being part of the family of God? What, what would you want to say to Christians about this one? Well, I had some help from my kids. So I asked them what they would say. Mm. The first thing they said, they said, don't be racist. Yeah. That was the first <laughs> thing they said. And stop other people from being racist. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the, basically what uh, Idun is saying. Like, don't just watch and let it happen. By doing that, you're participating in a way. Yeah. And I think as Christians, we run the risk of being bystanders that are just watching because we think okay now if i'm seen on the protest line oh i'm a christian right but our history is has a lot of evidence that christians of racism yeah yes got what we we are actually called protestants for goodness right so there was some protesting <laughs> wow. that happened right so they protest if necessary be part of the solution educate yourself Talk to, you know, your family. Talk to people that are of different, of some difference from yourself. And mm -hmm. let's not create those artificial barriers because we, we are afraid. Let's cross them. Like in our own church, you know, there's many times when I feel like um, some people feel like I'm new. <laughs> because I, a lot of people keep welcoming me to this. <laughs> Actually, the ones who are new, like I've been there for more than 20 years. <laughs> right? You're not the so, only one. They do that to me. All. <laughs> <laughs> so I get that all the time and I have to kind of play it all right and say, actually, I'm not new. <laughs> Where did you come from? Oh, I came from the Maritimes. Okay, welcome, I guess. <laughs> so we need to open those conversations and, 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 and not create further divisions, right? Mm. And 
Jason, talk, you talk a lot of, usually about um, who do you invite to your house? Mm. You always invite people that are like you. That's a question that you have asked many times in some mm. of your, your sermons. We need to put that in practice, I think. If we break those barriers, then this issue of race is non-existent mm. because we are real brothers and sisters. And Three. Galatians 3.28 talks about that. There's neither Jew nor gentle and all this. So we are all brothers and sisters in the mm-hmm. church. And we need to do that in practice. Mm. Uh, w- uh, Favor, would you say that anybody has asked you some questions? Uh, neighbors, people around you, uh, have they been asking how you're doing? No, nobody. And I actually talk to a lot of my neighbors and I'm out a lot. But I would say this, that when I'm out walking my dog in the last month, people have been overly nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Lots so, of and, smiles and waves, and, which don't <laughs> usually happen. Usually I'm the one that instigates them. <laughs> but, but in this case, I'm just the recipient and enjoying it for now. Interesting. So in your, in your mind, it would be people are going like, look, I just want to make sure that this guy knows that I'm not <laughs> I'm one of those not people. Racist. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I do have a, a sister in the Lord here who is also from Zambia. Mm-hmm. She did actually receive an actual... Uh, reach out message oh. about this. I'm, in fact, from a person from our church. Okay. That's nice. Good, yeah, and I thought that was really nice. Somebody mm-hmm. was making an effort. Effort, yeah. Everybody should do that. But it is, you know, we, we are all uncomfortable about this. Yeah. This is not a, a problem for the minorities. It's our problem as a community. Mm-hmm. So we need to be involved, like I said, educate ourselves and discuss it talk about it Hmm. thank you all right richard you're not afraid to speak your mind so talk to us as the church uh, or to cochranites what would you want to say uh for myself uh racism is real talk about it don't uh don't brush it under the the rug so to speak um it's real and i think like Faber said, you know, uh, if if you feel like there's racism in you or that it exists, you try to distinguish it. You try to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Get to know your neighbors. Invite them over. Go out for a beer. Have tea. Have coffee. Go, you know, get to know the people around you uh, to help eliminate uh, any sort of unconscious bias that you may have. Right? Uh, it's there, right in front of us. About the church, there's no white Jesus. Stop mm-hmm. putting pictures of white Jesus. It sickens me to the core. Mm. I'm, so what, Christians should only be white? Why is there white Jesus? That never exists. <laughs> oh my God. But every book you look at, <laughs> I, I, show me brown Jesus, show me black Jesus. He was never white. But, uh, angels, they're always depicted as white doves flying down. So uh, when I was learning about Christianity, I was like, so is, it, is Christianity for only white people? Because uh, it seems like all the pictures that are depicting Christianity seem to be white. So, Jason, you want to do me a favor? Put up some black Jesus up there. Thank you. Oh my God! He was never. He was never white. He was never white. Period. I don't I have know to where say something. I'm sorry. I have I mean, to say something about that. He's a good-looking good guy. I love him. <laughs> but, oh my God! I'm sorry. I have to say something quickly about that. I. 
like I said, I was so hungry. I started reading my Bible again. Well, I read my Bible. I read my Bible. But I started reading my Bible for like finding something in that Bible that says slavery was okay. Or something in that Bible that says, oh, Jesus wasn't a black person. Like, I was like, for so long, systemic racism, like you asked, is not just involved in policing or employment, even in our Christian work. It's there because we yes. project Jesus to be this blue high guy with, you know, long hair. And I started researching who Jesus was, like, what was his culture? Like, I started doing that purposely to really like, oh my God, why are these people still here? Like, I felt like, did we have a different Bible? And, you know, based on my research, I found that when there was, when there was slavery in the U.S., they actually created a different Bible to make slavery okay and had like, you know, slave obey your master and blah 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 you know so for me it's not just systemic racism it's not just in policing or in employment even in our christian walk how are we project jesus like i i'm sorry i'm looking forward to coming to church and i pray i don't find a white jesus on the altar like i really don't <laughs> want to see a white jesus on the altar it's just going to take away because now i'm conscious about it right I, I i mean i want my children to really understand that having a relationship with God is not having this image in your mind when you pray that this guy that has long hair and blue eyes and all that. And mm -hmm. I know you asked the question earlier, like, you know, talking to children about these and engaging your children. My kids are still very young. And I guess the double dilemma for me is my, my boys have special needs. So mm -hmm. their understanding of things or the way they react to things or people, it's different from mm -hmm. what you would define as normal. But this is our normal. And for me, that's one of the reasons why I said we need to get out of here, which was in the U.S. We need to come somewhere where they are more accepting. But now it's more like they have special needs. One sword pointed at them. They are black. Two double-edged swords pointed at them. So I have to be more conscious, more vigilant, more vocal about how they are treated. Because they would not, if you tell Nathan, hands up, he would not really raise his hands up because he doesn't know what the heck you're talking about. Yeah. So if he rehat somehow, is he going to get shot? Like the 12-year-old guy that had a toy gun in the park. Is my son going to get shot because he has a toy gun? That's why I don't even buy him a toy gun. I would never buy him a toy gun mm. because of that, right? Mm. So systemic racism exists everywhere, unfortunately, even in the church. And that's why I said I was beginning to lose faith in Christianity, not in Christ, but in people that have come and act like Jesus is a white person. We need to be more accepting. We need to, pre we need to practice what we preach. We need to be intentional about how we relate to people. Talk to them. Educate yourself. Someone said, educating yourself does not mean you were stupid. It only means that you are intelligent enough to know there is more to learn. Mm. So go out there, watch movies, read books, pick up a new book at the library or Google. Well, Google might give you a whole lot of things, but, <laughs> <laughs> but really go on real intentional research to understand what's going on. Why are these people angry all the time? you call us angry women all the time as a woman i can't even say so much at work anymore because then i'm targeting angry black woman which is ridiculous right so it's hard if people are not educated people need to really really go out and find out why is this happening and what can i do about it that's being intentional in your christianity well i know i'll take away the 
anti-racist part to, to the being anti-racist is acknowledging racist parts that are in my own thinking and saying, okay, I'm, I'm not for that, even though I've held that, that's, that's helpful for me. So thank you. Um, I think, uh, I think I'm going to, we'll, we'll wind there, uh, wind up there. And I just want to thank each one of you for um, uh, talking about something that's pretty close to home and uh, helping me and uh, those who might listen, get a little bit of perspective of, of what, uh, what you navigate every day and, how we might be a part of some of that and how we could do better. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Real Podcast. For more information on this episode and others, check out our website at cochranalliance.com backslash real. Until next time, keep it real.